Welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Main reason for the SR-71 program, in a nutshell, was part of the PSYOP program, the Single Integrated Operational Plan, which would be used, you know, in a nuclear exchange. So, uh, so that's, if you like, was the raison d'etre of you know, of the SR-71. The radar, they, it would bounce around the submarine pen and they would be able to tell whether there was an, a, a submarine in that sub pen or not. Extended, your aerospace radio station. Hello there, I'm Peter Johnson, and welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Today I'm joined by Paul Crickmore, author of the highly acclaimed Lockheed Blackbird Beyond the Secret Missions book. He's written over 20 books and he's also an honorary member of several A12 and SR71 Veterans Association. But today we're here to talk about the fabulous new revised edition of the book, The Missing Chapters. Paul, welcome to Extended. Thanks very much indeed, Peter. Thanks for having me. Very popular, your books are. Uh, my co-presenters were, were jealous of, of me talking to you today. But Paul, um, before we talk about the book, you, you weren't always an author. How did aviation come into your life? Well, aviation came into my life, uh, you know, quite some time ago. Um, when I was a kid growing up in Lowestoft, I joined 469 Squadron Air Traffic, uh, Air, Air Training Corps. Um, my aircraft recognition instructor, Ian McLaughlin, lovely chap, has written some fantastic books himself. We used to go digging up aeroplanes that crashed during the Second World War. So in that time, I was probably about 14. So, you know, it goes back quite some time that I was interested in aviation. Um, Went into uh, air traffic at London ATC in 72 um, and saw my first Blackbird in 1974, like many other people at Farnborough. And, uh, and that was it. I was kind of smitten. But it was the photography thing, really, first of all, that, um, you know, kind of got me interested. And, um, it, yeah, it was, it was an interesting journey, really. Um, in 80, well, I, I was very lucky to be able to sort of blag my way um, onto various KC-135 tanker flights on orientation. Was, was, that, was this because you were in the air traffic control uh, environment and had some opportunities to do that? Exactly that, Peter. Right. Yeah, it really right. was. And it was of a time as well when one could sort of do that sort of thing. And now, obviously, yeah. all sorts of uh, security reasons, you know, things are really being tightened up considerably. But no, I've, I've been, I've flown in many different types of uh, aircraft, uh, fast jets of the RAF and the US Air Force, um, helicopters as well, and transport aircraft, you know, I mean, I've been extremely lucky. But it was, yeah, air to air photography, really. And, uh, uh, back in, whew, I think it was about September 1981, um, just coming back, uh, land at Milden Hall and my escort officer, Jim Morrow, meted me, met me at the, the bottom of the steps for the 135 and we taxied past an SR and jumped down off the steps. He said, did you get any good shots? I said, yeah, we'd been over to Germany and I got some air-to-airs of F-15s air refueling. And I said, so what's the chances, though, of getting on an air refueling uh, trip of that little one? I was sort of pointing to that. And he had an amazingly gruff-voiced Jim. He must have sort of smoked about 50 gulwars a day. And he sort of said, whoa, that's something <laughs> altogether different. You know? And I sort of <laughs> left it there. You know, sort of, you know, I have got a long neck. My mother always used to say this, but I thought, you know, no, I better read in a bit at this stage anyway yeah a couple of weeks later the phone went at home and knowing you know this is some cold war times it all sounds all very james bond doesn't it but you know it was an open 
phone line and uh, picked it up and immediately recognized Jim's voice. And he said, uh, that airplane, you know, that we saw last, uh, knowing exactly what he meant. I said, yes, sir, Jim. He said, can you get to Melden Hall main gate tomorrow at six in the morning? Yes. Can I bring my camera? There's <laughs> that neck again. <laughs> yeah. It. Yeah. And he said, yep. And he put the phone down. And so that's what I did. I got to Milton Hall Main Gate. They'd obviously worked on getting me some kind of special clearance to do this because we got airborne. Um, when I was spent most of my time up in, in the cockpit and in the back end with the boom operator. But uh, the navigator's position, there was the air refueling area, all stamped very liberally yeah. with top secret all over it. And, um, yeah, you know, that was it. Um, I wasn't to tell anyone where we went. I mean, we, of course, we can now. We were off Bodo. Um, on Viking North, the air refueling track. Uh, okay. Sort of, you know, about eight days later, because the poor old tanker flogging away, <laughs> up came the SR-71 in no time at all. We were in the refueling track. In we came. And it was October, and we were down, you know, at about 26,000 foot, something like that. So it could have been pretty awful uh, way up there in the Arctic Circle at that time of year, but it wasn't. And the weather was absolutely gin clear. It really was. We were over the sea, so I could take air-to-air shots, and there's nothing classified about the outside of the aeroplane. Uh, the, even the orientation of the refueling track was perfect. You know, the sun was illuminating inside those inlets, and normally they appear like yeah. just black blobs. Uh, anyways, a long story short, got back to uh, um, toward the watch, and I was showing my very dear friend Kev Gothard the shots, and he was saying, "Yeah, oh, you know, Cricks, you really ought to get these published." And yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, after se- you know, several weeks, this went on for, and eventually, I thought, "Well, I'll, I'll give it a try." Sent them off to Air Enthusiast. They published three or four photographs, and then they came back to me and said, "Look, uh, do you fancy writing an article for us?" And I, never written an article before but yeah okay all right i'll i'll write an article and, and i as i say peter I, I knew you know where the red lines were uh and i and in any event sent it over to milton hall and uh, it came back with three or four sentences that's all um with uh, red lines through it and uh so it was published in two parts and then Dennis Baldry, the larger than live uh, editor uh, at the time of Osprey, um, read the article and got in touch with me and said, uh, you seem to know a lot about this book. Uh, this airplane, why, why don't you write a book for us? <laughs> I thought, in my supreme <laughs> stupidity or whatever, I was, well, I've never written a book before, but yes, okay, I'll give it a go. And then that's where things really started to take off. Right. I went over to the States and I met Ben Rich and I went to Beal and all sorts. So, yes, it, it really kicked off from there. And I guess that would have been about 1986, something like that. Well, I was in Skunk Works about 85, I think. Okay. So that's wow. how it have happened. Wow. So, to it. <laughs> well, um, from your reputation, I don't believe that's quite the case. But anyway, let's, let's, let's talk about this book then, 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 Paul. It's in its third revision. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so so let's go back um, because I've only read it once. Uh, I've had sight of the book. It's quite an impressive. Um, it is an impressive book. It's a big book. The photography is is stunning. There's so many unique photos. Um, there's graphics in there. There's some wonderful um, letters, handwritten letters, all sorts of things in there. That how? Let, let's just talk about it as a collective before we talk about the um, the missing chapters and get on to talk about the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that book come together? Because I don't believe that was your first book, was it? Um, I mean, the, the, my first book was, as I say, you know, way back um, in time. I think it was 1986, I think, that the yeah. Combat Series book first appeared. But, yeah. you know, uh, clearly, in 86, it was the Cold War. And there was a lot that was classified. Um, yeah, there was uh, some pretty decent stuff that Lockheed had released uh, about you know, building the aeroplane. And certainly my trip to the skunk works where i met and spent three days with uh, with ben rich mr ben rich who at that time had taken over um as the boss of skunk works from kelly who was uh, very ill at that time 
and Ben uh, was just incredibly generous, <clears throat> and he real rolled in uh, some test pilots that were on the aeroplane. Uh, Bill Weaver, Bill Park uh, introduced me to um, Jim Easton at the Skunk Works, but where to find him, and they sorted that all out. So they were just incredible. So all of a sudden, you know, there was a lot of information. When I went to Beale, um, they kindly let me uh, have access to their scrapbook, which there was a lot of stuff. Yeah. And obviously, it was clearly public domain stuff, um, but it was all in one place. And so, again, I was able to sort of build a, a much clearer, bigger picture of, of what the airplane had been getting up to. Every now and again, of course, there were snippets that appeared um, in the newspapers about it, um, during the Yom Kippur War, for instance, uh, you know, uh, what was going on there. And, and so every yeah. now and again, the sort of curtains, if you like, parted and we were allowed the occasional glimpse. But quite rightly, you know, um, there was a reason for there being security attached to what it was doing. And I mean, and the big reason, <clears throat> particularly in this country, well, two big reasons. First of all was buffer zone, um, as was then between East and West Germany and around Czechoslovakia up there. So um, flying, you know, at 80 odd thousand foot, you could look in, you know, the airplane did not, yeah. um, you know, cross borders, uh, overfly the Soviet Union or anything like that. that. Eisenhower actually implemented that ban when powers were shut yeah. down and said, right, you know, there'll be no manned aircraft that will do this ever again. And subsequent presidents upheld that. Um, However, and the other big area of interest, of course, was the amazing work that they were able to do for the U.S. Navy, keeping an eye on the Soviet's northern fleet. They, uh, yeah. With intercontinental ballistic missiles, they would come out um, and into the Barentsium. They were ice-free ports, and the ICBMs were capable of being launched from under the surface over the poles, and they could wipe out whole swathes of the eastern seaboard of the United States. So um, it was a bit like sort of keeping an eye on nuts in shells. You know that game, where's the ladies kind of Mm. of thing? So we go up, um, fly, as I say, in international airspace, but looking at and using uh, both the the, um, uh, panoramic camera in the nose and also uh, all... um, or, or the radar or a radar nose or high powered cameras and they could look in and even with <clears throat> the radar they they would it would bounce around the submarine pen and they would be able to tell whether there was an, a, a submarine in that sub pen or not and of course the various orientations of the pens in relation to you know the the, um, the coastline um, yeah. wasn't something that a, a satellite just sort of going around the earth could do because of the different orientations whereas the SR would do two or three loops and get, and get different angles uh, you know, yeah. they were able to give that information to the US Navy, and hence they were, they will be able to, to tell you know which subs were at sea and which weren't, and you know, yeah, it's an extremely important job. So, so Paul, let me go back to, to, to come forward then because, um, I think one of the things a lot is talk, a lot has been talked in lots of forums, and we've even done some some features on the the SR seventy one um, in the past at quite a quite a high level. But I want to talk a bit more about the A12. Um, I want to um, learn a bit more about the A12 because I think there is less about the A12 and the Oxcart program um, out and about. And the book um, has some fabulous insights, particularly around Vietnam, I'd like to ask you uh, about. But let's go back. What was the background and what was the development? Where was the need for, for the A12? Where did it, Where did it come from? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a good point. If we can go just a tad back for you, even further, in October of fifty four, President Eisenhower accepted recommendations um, from three and three committee and from the Land Committee, and basically uh, he agreed that you know, aerial reconnaissance was necessary to gather strategic reconnaissance using covert overflights, but manned by civilian CIA, not U.S. Air Force pilots. So all of right. a sudden, we went from overnight it being a U.S. Air Force 
task to it being something that the CIA did, which actually at the time, um, Dulles, who was um, the DCI, um, the boss of CIA, was not overly impressed about at all. You know, he did not see having an air force as being sort of the yeah. CIA. But anyway, so that's how they got into it being a CIA program for a start. Right. And of course, it was the U-2. Um, that actually was the aeroplane that implemented that policy until, of course, the 1st of May uh, in 1960, when, of course, um, mm. Gary Pyles was shot down. Uh, but but mm. even before that, uh, the very first mission uh, in uh, July of, uh, I think it was 4th of July 1956, the very first flight um, over, um, over the Soviet Union, it was apparent uh, that the aeroplane was being tracked by Soviet radar, and indeed several attempts were made to shoot it down. So yeah. um, the very next month, in August, um, a radar sort of camouflaging program was set in motion, um, and that was codenamed Rainbow, where they tried to use all sorts of interesting um, methods of reducing the U-2's radar signature. Uh, but it, it didn't work, really. It really did not work. Um, and the pilots that flew the, um, these things, they called covered wagons because they were um, all sort of aerials and all sorts of radar-absorbing um, material around them. But it weighed, it reduced the, the, the range and the um, altitude that the aeroplane could fly at. So they hated it, not surprisingly. Yeah. Uh, so in January '58, uh, CIA basically charged... Um, uh, Kelly and his team, Kelly Johnson and his team at the Skunk Works to build a replacement. And, and that, there we had it. They, they went then into Project Gusto. Uh, and Gusto initially was sort of a subsonic, stealthy um, uh, airplane. Um, but that wasn't really sort of doing much for Johnson. He didn't really subscribe to the sort of what outcome he was arguing pretty well throughout look we're spending a heck of a lot of time getting a stealthy airplane here and bearing in mind we didn't have, they didn't have computers so predicting the way that uh, an airplane would react to incident radar was very very difficult to predict and besides yeah. which, as we know later you know um, until you had fly by wire you couldn't build a shape that could fly <laughs> you know that was good yeah yeah at, at, yeah at, cancelling out radar returns so you know they weren't in the right time frame if you like with the technology available to do it. so johnson actually put more of his efforts into using extreme speed uh, and extreme altitude uh, in order to sort of you know um produce a, a vehicle that was survivable in in really a, a sound threat because you know the SA-2, that was going to be the thing that was likely to knock these things down. Um, And so, uh, yeah, that's where he put his effort. And from, uh, I think it was about the 21st of April, 58, I think it was, when he drew out his first Archangel aircraft. Uh, And, of course, um, there was a competition. It was a paper competition. By that, I mean there were no actual prototypes built yep. the aircraft as such but Convair was brought in and they had fish um, which is quite interesting uh, first invisible super hustler that's what that's <laughs> uh, yeah there's some, had, there's some great content in the book about that actually uh, I didn't know any of that yes. yeah so anyways uh, a long story short going from a1 Archangel Archangel okay another quick aside there in the skunk works when they were working on the U2, they called it Kelly's Angel because of the fantastically high altitude that the aeroplane would fly at. And so working on this aeroplane, which was going to fly probably about 30,000 foot higher, uh, the team started to call it Archangel. So therefore we then got a1, A2, A3, and right, various okay. design connotations and iterations until we got to A12. That was the one that beat Convair, the program, that the Gusto program was cancelled, and it then became um, Oxcart. Right, and I think okay. that's quite interesting, uh, you know, how they got that name. Uh, John yeah, I was going to ask that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. John Parangovsky at that time was a CIA program manager. He had a list of sort of random name, code names, uh, and it sort of appealed to his sense of irony and his wry sense of humour. Like, we're just about to build 
what turned out actually, in fact, to be the world's fastest operational jet. So let's name it after probably one of the world's slowest forms of manned transport ever. You know, <laughs> hence, hence start. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so that's where that. And so anyway, they they started to uh, to build uh, that, and of course, uh, that was in sort of fifty eight, and then um, of course we know powers were shot down in sixties. Then all of a sudden, it's like, oh my yeah. word, what on earth are we going to do with this uh, with this aeroplane that we've we've started to build? Um, uh, yeah, because it was well into development by then, wasn't it, Paul? Yes, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was. Um, uh, it, um, and we got uh, eight months, uh, yeah, before um, yeah. the power shot down, uh, ship was, shoot, was shot down, beg your pardon. Uh, uh, Skunk Works got the contract to build. Um, mm. uh, and he flew, and uh, Lou Shark flew, uh, flew the aeroplane, actually, on the, the 25th of April, 1962. But Right, six months earlier, uh, than, sorry, six months later than that, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, and on the 27th yeah. of October, we we lose another U-2, this time, you know, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, to yet another SA-2. So they were right to continue to, to build it, because, they, you know, they've been proven that the U-2, we, we cannot put that, you know, in uh, in a, an SA-2 environment, because, you know, it just yeah. doesn't, isn't going to work. So, um, and Paul, sorry to interrupt you there. That the, you, you sort of skipped over a, a, a point there. It was phenomenally quick how they developed it in, in comparison to what we're familiar with nowadays, where it takes decades to get from the drawing board to um, to reality. It was phenomenally quick, wasn't it? A yeah. couple of years, and they had a flying prototype. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think, yeah, that that was one of Kelly's sort of watchwords: um, um, be quick, be quiet, be on time. And I think, you know, that was sort of his mantra when he was building the U two, and he had a track record and turning that round incredibly quickly. And I yeah. think, you know, that was one of the reasons I think why uh, the CIA, with Air Force support, you know, went ahead with the A twelve design because. Uh, you know, we've worked with this this team. We we know what they can deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, and so it would be. So they continued the development, but yeah, again, it's well, where are we gonna? What we're gonna do with it? Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> um, by mid nineteen sixty four, the aeroplane had, um, had demonstrated uh, its speed and altitude and endurance capability, um, and so they started to think, well, yeah, okay. Well, what about deploying it over Cuba? You know, clearly we can't overfly with the U two anymore. Uh, but there was a, a sort of a, a, a bit of a bureaucratic um, uh, differing of opinions because the, the program was going to be called Skylark. Uh, but there was a bit of infighting between the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense McNamara, Secretary of State Vance, and the. The, the chief of the CIA, DCI McCone, on the grounds that, well, if we did fly and something went wrong, it could compromise the overall secrecy of, of the Oxnard yeah. program. So a long story short, they, they did not go ahead with with Skylark. And then still the question remained, then, well, so what are we going to do with this thing? Um, yeah. And it was 1966, you know, when rumors started going around the, the intelligence community that the Soviets had supplied Scud and Shaddock surface-to-surface missiles to the North Vietnamese. And, and there we have it, because if that was indeed the case, you know, that re- uh, represented a significant strategic threat uh, yeah. to the U.S. military, who at that time were uh, you know, building up um, their forces in South Vietnam. And yeah. so, right, this is what we're going to do with it then. We're going to fly it. Yeah, and I, 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 I was really intrigued and uh, naive – um completely to the to the fact the A12s were used over um over Vietnam and you go into um significant detail in the book about every single operation there can you give us a bit of a flavor for for some of the missions that they flew 
Um, yeah, certainly. Uh, I mean, the first mission was the 31st of May, 1967. That was just a single sort of flight over, sort of, if you like, more or less from Haiphong over Hanoi and then out over the MBM few, roughly. And as you rightly say, yeah. maps and the maps that are in the book actually are CIA maps. Uh, they were very rough photocopies. And they were awful. And my very uh, <laughs> talented um, and lovely son-in-law tidied them all up. But they were just black and white. And so we were able to sort of work out um, and color code what we need yeah. by way of a key. Uh, and, and so the whole thing, just the overflight of North Vietnam took just nine minutes. Uh, it wow. refueled in a refueling area of uh, Thailand, accelerated, climbed, and Vorvaditch, Mel Vorvaditch, who flew the sortie, went over the demilitarized zone and back into Kadena. They didn't find any surface-to-surface missiles, but they found 70 of the 190 known SAM sites. And that was the thing. I was, um, it kind of, the airplane really, um, became pretty central in in, in mapping out because of this enormous swathe, you know, the cameras could photograph, had two cameras, one behind the other, and they, yeah. you know, pa- panoramic cameras, and they swept basically 35 miles each side, 36 miles each side of the aircraft track. The, the film was incredibly fine-grained. It was a special film that Kodak had developed for the program. The camera itself, again, just purposely built by Perkin Elmer Type 1, 18-inch focal length lens. And when they got the film and it was processed, the photo interpreters could just keep enlarging and enlarging and enlarging because of the grain, the granularity yeah. of the film was so, so fine. And so they were able to get all the detail. And they were... Um, and because it, they were hoovering up this vast amount of area, um, they could even identify which sites were manned and which weren't. And what happened back then in the sort of 67 time frame uh, when Operation Black Shield, the name of the operation to monitor what was going on in Vietnam, first took place, uh, the, the SAM... The SAM Battalion was very maneuverable and very, very, um, uh, mobile. And they could dismantle a SAM site in three hours, move it to somewhere else, reassemble it. And there were about six sites to every battalion. So they were playing right. this cat and mouse game with U.S. planners, strike yeah. planners of, well, where, okay, that we know there's a SAM site that, but does it have any missiles? So, you know, they needed to try and, um, plan their sorties, obviously, as clear uh, away from these SAM sites as they could. And the SR, the SR there, the I beg your pardon, was key in in getting that information to to the planners and the theatre commanders, which was so vital to them. But that really, in the true sense of the word, was more of a tactical reconnaissance task than a strategic reconnaissance task yeah as vital yeah. As, as it was and so it kind of the mission it was a bit of mission creep it sort of got a bit more going on into sort of the, the tactical reconnaissance which was not what the cia had been hired to do with this airplane really did you know that during the falklands war in 1982 there was a plan to put the black buck raids on steroids by sending an Avro Vulcan to bomb airfield targets on mainland Argentina, potentially returning to RAF Waddington the long way round via Chile, Easter Island, Tahiti, Hawaii, the USA and Canada? Did you also know that during the Second World War, a proposal was made to build B-29 superfortresses in the UK, powered by Bristol Centaurus engines? If your answers to the above are yes, you're probably a regular reader of The Aviation Historian, the quarterly journal, print and digital, that explores the less well-trodden paths of flying history. If your answers are no, visit theaviationhistorian.com and see what you're missing. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran from Plane Crazy Down Under. And you're listening to Extended... And there were 20-plus missions over Vietnam, 27, 28, uh, something yeah, 29 like that. Yeah. Including, 29. 20, including the three, though, you're right. That was three over North Korea, which is probably what you're thinking. Right, well. okay. So, oh, okay. Yeah. 
And um, it, as you said, mission creep sort of happened, but they they became through those through those overflights a critical part of the Ameri- American military intelligence solution, didn't they? Yes. Yes, they did. Yeah, because they were also doing, you know, bomb damage assessment. Uh, you know, there were strategic elements going on. They um, were able to, to um, get imagery and the PI photo interpreters were literally able to count, you know, how many uh, locomotives they had, how much rolling stock. Uh, you know, they really did have a, a very good idea of, of the, uh, the North Vietnam's uh, infrastructure. Um, yeah. Uh- um, um, and we sort of skipped over the skip maybe inappropriate term, but um, skipped over the fact that you know they they were flying at what what sort of speeds over Vietnam? Yeah. Uh, okay. So the aeroplane was at its most efficient at Mark three point two. So right. uh, that's about two thousand five hundred miles an hour sustained. That's not you know just in with the burners for a quick two minutes and out again. Yeah. It was it was sustained and the aeroplane functioned at its best at that speed. And it you know very often what they would do is actually uh, go in at Mark. Three Mark three point one, and have just a little bit to spare if they if they needed it. Um, yeah, and that was the flight. And at fifteen miles high, which is what they were flying at at eighty thousand foot plus, yeah, it made it very very difficult to fire an SA two, you know, way way up in front of the aeroplane in order to arrive in this little pocket of airspace. What this that this aeroplane who was you know uh, doing three miles every four seconds was clacking yeah. through. I mean, that's faster than the muzzle velocity of a 30 caliber bullet. Yeah. So it, it, it is amazing. Numbers. Awesome. Yeah. But the, um, the forces, uh, that you mentioned the Chinese in, in, in the book, you mentioned the Soviets, of course. Um, and they were finding every way possible to see if they could track one of these, uh, overflights and obviously potentially um, shoot one down as well. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, you can imagine, can't you, you know, having this wretched thing going over, you know, like the frustration, you know. This, yeah. And uh, and certainly the Soviet advisors and, the, well, the, and the Chinese communists uh, with with the North Vietnamese as well worked very closely together. I mean, with the North Vietnamese integrated air defense system and the CHICOMs to first of all track, which they did after the third mission. Um, it was a, the first time that the airplane had flown what they call two passes over North Vietnam. And on the second pass on the third mission, they managed to track the airplane, not very accurately, but, for the first time. So it was a start. And as missions progressed, they got smarter and quicker at actually yeah. tracking the, the aeroplanes. And the the big thing about this doing this book um, was that the CIA um, declassified uh, literally six months after releasing the last book a blizzard of documents, virtually, virtually everything about Oxcart. And there was an enormous amount of information that came from the NSA, the National Security Agency, which I did not think communications intelligence comment that I personally did not think would ever see the light of day. And And Paul, just on, just on that security release, was there any barriers to the fact that you weren't American in terms of accessing that data? No, it became a a, a sort of, um, I I can't, to be honest with you, Peter, remember who it was that put in the FOIA, the Freedom of Information uh, request uh, for it. Um, But, yeah, all of a sudden, and as I say, just after when the damn book had got to publish, it was, thank goodness, you know, that we didn't get anything wrong in it, but it was the sheer amount (laughs) of additional detail that came along. Yeah. That all of a sudden it's like, oh, my goodness, you know, and listening in, you know, using that comment, that's how the Americans knew where they, the North Vietnamese and the Chai Coms were in the process of trying to tr- track, which they did successfully, and shoot down 
try and shoot down uh, this infernal um, titanium monster that was taking, you know, all sorts of pictures that they yeah. really didn't want them to take. <laughs> and and how did you um, build up the? Because again, there's detail on the um, on the Chinese, Soviet, and Vietnam based response how did you get that detail was it how did you get access that side of the story yeah that was uh, all comment it was all in you know that there were um there were hundreds of pages of documents that the cia declassified uh as i say, and 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 there it all was you know um, wow it was it was wow. it was incredible uh, I, I mean it was quite interesting on the seventh sortie, Black Shield sortie, that uh, they flew in. After, there were three aircraft that were deployed in Black, uh, on Operation Black Shield. Uh, for those that are interested, they, they use the article numbers for the aeroplane uh, yeah. in-house way that uh, uh, Lockheed used to. So Article 127, 129, and 131 were the three aircraft that they used. And it was Article 127 that when it got airborne the american planners um basically at project headquarters at langley thought right we're gonna have some fun and see you know what we can do to upset the tracking so as ken collins who flew the sortie rounded um uh, hainan island a u2 um from the republic of china got airborne from taiwan uh, on what they call Church Door. This is a, a CIA-sponsored um, program uh, where very, very uh, heroic, brave uh, uh, Chinese pilots from Taiwan flew numerous sorties into China in the U-2, getting information. So anyway, um, so that it was timed that the U-2 would cross underneath the uh, the A-12 as it was going around Hainan Island in an attempt, I think, you know, yeah. people off guard, the, the, those that were trying to track the aeroplane, like what's going on here sort of thing. So that <clears throat> they did that. And um, Ken Collins, uh, you know, coasted in over North Vietnam, did his shots, and then went around. And at the beginning of his second pass, as he'd cleared uh, the southern part of North Vietnam, was tracking into the Gulf of Tonkin, a high-altitude reconnaissance-gathering drone came down from the north to the south. And again, the two um, tracks crossed. Yeah, it must have been quite, you know, what on earth is going on here, you know? But, yeah, yeah. You know, a long story short, it didn't work. I mean, it, you know, it really did not work. It didn't throw the um, Chai Coms or the North Vietnamese off the scent at all, and they continued to track uh, the A-12. So the, the tactics were... You know, were never repeated. But for me, it was a fascinating insight into, you know, the, yeah. the twos and fros of a war. You know, and the, the um, Soviets then started to mess around with the fuse system of their SA2s when they realised that they were being fired off <clears throat> prematurely by the airplane's yeah. death system, and then they were messing around with the pulse repetition frequency of the um, SAM fan song radar um in order to get that airplane up quicker um so they fire on a low prf um for six seconds and then switch it back into high prf to give it final guidance so that that for that the last part of the the missiles flight and that would increase the sort of the target window for the so to see yeah. all this toing and froing you know it was it was fascinating you know it really and was. and and you do describe each of those um, missions in in detail um, in the book. When I was when I was reading those particular parts, Paul, one of the things that it really did for me. Well, I, I tell you, the first thing it did is it felt it didn't feel like this was sixty odd years ago. Yeah. It felt like something going on in the world today. And you know, the one thing about um, the whole program, the A twelve, the SR seventy one, is that technology is almost still as relevant now, particularly when you were discussing um, some of the bits about stealth technology mm -hmm. as well. They're still very relevant to today. I think that was that was really fascinating. Were there any um, incidents, accidents um, in the program I I over Vietnam 
Um, uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, that you know, they, the, the North Vietnamese almost cracked shooting one of these things down on the 28th of October. And then on the 30th of October, they actually deployed two additional batteries um, out of Haiphong around Hanoi. And they fired, it was between seven and ten SA-2s at this one aeroplane. Uh, the idea to swamp the death system, hoping that one missile would get through and, and hit its target, um, you know, which they, they didn't. They came damn close. There were two tiny bits of shrapnel, actually, that hit the aeroplane, which are now on display together with a, a, a tiny part of the strut of a fillet, um, which you can actually, well, you can't actually see because you can't usually get access to the uh, to the CIA museum anyway at Langley, and there it is. So, uh, uh, so there's that. Uh, on another occasion, um, a dear friend who's no longer um, with me, Frank Murray, uh, was flying. Actually, it was his first sortie in the A12 when he had uh, an engine had an unstart, which I'm sure you'll want to come to uh, about that in a, in a bit. It's a question I need to ask. I didn't understand, but. Yeah. Uh, so he had an unstart and then a fire, an engine fire. So he had to shut the engine down when he was over North Vietnam. And uh, he managed to recover actually into Tak Lee um, in Thailand. Uh, so, you know, that was, uh, you know, quite, quite, interesting um and he sort of he was telling me he said you know we um, managed he said uh, air traffic was screaming you know uh, so i just announced my arrival on finals you know uh, um wanted to know what sort of airplane i, I was and so on and i was sort of saying single seat u.s that was it, and this thing—if you can imagine—all black, no, no, yeah. no, you know, uh, no national insignia on it. The serial numbers in dark red on the tail, completely bogus. Uh, and it landed, and standard operating procedure was you ditch the drags, drag shoot on the runway yeah. when you're doing about fifty knots. Otherwise, the heavy cleaver that anchors it to the airplane, when it comes off, you're going much slower. It would damage the back end of the airplane. So he pinged that off, and that sat there in the middle of the runway as he turned off, and it screwed up an F one hundred five missions that we were supposed <laughs> to be flying and he said and there was this this uh, this pilot sitting there in a spacesuit on the radio saying no i you know bringing bring the base commander out to me i there are yep. things i need to tell him you know and uh, he's very <laughs> gracious about it all he said but uh, i mean can you imagine peter seeing this thing as you say you look at it now so futuristic mm. in 1967 yeah, this yeah. thing coming down unannounced. Uh, and again, you know, Frank was saying that the you know, cameras were appearing from all sorts of, from the guys on base, yeah. you know, taking yeah. pictures. And, yeah. But, and so Which all had to be confiscated, they didn't they? Confiscated. And I'll tell you, that is one of the biggest things. If any, I can't believe surely someone out there, someone didn't keep know, one. You know, us for two years are like, yeah, you know, yeah. there must be one around somewhere of this. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a great, that's a great story. Um, I really enjoyed reading that. Um, l- let's deal with that unstart. Um, question before we skip on and we've got a few um, listener questions as well to challenge you with Paul Um, it comes up multiple times particularly in the early stages of the um, uh, the development and the flying and operating of the A12 Um, I could never get my head around what is an unstart okay okay right Um, okay so obviously the higher you go, the less air, air pressure is. So where the aeroplane cruised, uh, the air, external air pressure was about a quarter of a pound a square inch, like 25 pounds a square inch down here at sea level. So the intake was such that you, the spike, if you look at the aeroplane, that's where it would be, you know, until a, a 1.2, 1.3, when, the aeroplane, when it's unlocked and it starts to go back into the nacelle. As it does so, because it's a spike and retreating into a tube, if you like, the capture area increases. So it sucks in more air, which it needs because of the very low air pressure. In addition to that, though, the inside duct of that inlet also comes and causes it and make and makes a throat so you've got actually quite a very small area that all this extra air is being channeled into and compressed uh and and obviously the temperatures get very high as it compresses all this air because it's going so far and then it, the 
the other side of the throat, uh, the inlet opens out again and it allows a gradual increase of that air and it produces a pressure differential. So in that intake, you've got about 14 PSI in the intake, whereas outside is a quarter of a pound. So you're getting, you're basically as Ben Rich explained it to me, you know, it's actually sucking the aeroplane along, if that makes it easier to imagine, because of this differential air pressure. You know, you know, on your weather maps, how air goes from high pressure to low pressure. So that's what it, so it draws the aeroplane. And that's, that's great when everything is, is working and it's, you've got this finely balanced shock wave in the right place and yeah, everything is going gangbusters. If anything, though, disturbs that airflow in the compressor, uh, in the, the, the intake area, uh, um, it literally belches it out. So you lose all that pressure recovery of your inlet immediately. Now, Kelly Johnson, of course, being the genius that he absolutely was, thought, hey, this is, this could be very nasty. Can you imagine the G forces on the airplane when, you know, bang, you're losing all that vast amount with the engines out at mid semi span, you know, halfway across the wing. So all the pressure, all the the thrust being lost immediately. So he, as soon as uh, the, 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 the systems um, censored that there was an unstart. It automatically caused an unstart in the other engine so that you didn't have this enormous pr- right. you know, pressures that would rip yeah. the aeroplane apart. Yeah. So that's good. Now all you had to do was recover the whole thing uh, and get it back to where it was. So, you know, basically you'd come uh, – throttle back you'd read um, you get you come down lower it's fine if you, you didn't have any um back end problems with uh you know flame outs or anything like that but so first and foremost if, if you didn't get a flame out if you could capture that pressure air uh that pressure wave in the intake everything would be restored and off you go again so that was the unstart uh you know basically an enormous uh loss of power on one or even right. both engines. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, um, yeah, yeah. It's, I'm not an engineer, so I, I've had to grasp the uh, the simple uh, elements of that. But I think I, I think I've got it. Let's let's skip on, Paul. Um, uh, you you talk about the A12. You do go into um, details well on the um, SR71. Um, but let me skip some of that for the readers to go back and mm, uh, sure. enjoy. And let me jump on to, I suppose, towards the latter end of the book and, and ask you some questions about how the SR-71 was used and, and, and some of the things before we come to some questions. I was fascinated by NASA's use of the um, the SR-71 to, to, to validate launch vehicle data. Can you just... Mm. Tell us a little bit about um, about that. Uh, the linear aerospike uh, um, SR seventy one experiment. Um, yeah, uh, I, it, it, it's not an area that I've really studied, perhaps as hard as I should. To be absolutely honest with you, no, no, no. It was just fascinating to know the aircraft had been used in it. Tr- they tried to imitate a, a, a rocket ship, in yeah. effect. Yeah, I mean, it, in fact, it wasn't original um, because um, in um, the tag board program, they'd used a D-21 drone on a modified, as was then, A-12. So they called that the M-21. Yeah. So they swapped the numbers around and a D-21 drone. So it was much the same kind of thing. It, you know, it was um, a, a Mark III plus drone much smaller more difficult to hit and, and, and that was a, a separate program so yeah it, it wasn't the first time per se that um you know the um, that family of aircraft the black yeah. birds if that's what you want to call them uh, had actually carried aloft uh, another vehicle okay okay um and um just moving a little bit further on I, I, it's you go into a lot of detail about the process and the politics involved in the end of the program, towards the end of the program. Mm. Um, and again, it's it's really insightful because, um, in effect, the, the technical application of the product was completely ignored in favour of sector politics. But hey-ho, that's the way um, the world yes. rotates. Yes. Um and there were there were many 
different ways of evaluating the success of the uh, of the Blackbird and uh, obviously more latterly the SR-71. But I thought um, shutdown was really, really insightful um, when politics, in effect, tried to play off the SR-71 to the KH-11. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, 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 I'm glad you picked that one up, Peter. Yeah. I, I mean, this was quite, quite outrageous, really. Um, so in uh, um, spring of 89, uh, really, when it kicked off, as I alluded to earlier, the, the intelligence that the aeroplane debt four especially was gathering of on the northern fleet was such that it, you know the u.s navy were reliant absolutely reliant on that intelligence it was crucial to them um but of course you know the as they were known by some in some quarters the fighter mafia the 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 big bosses at the Pentagon, all with fighter backgrounds by this time, um, really yeah. were, 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 you know, that starved the aeroplane from funds so it didn't have the most up-to-date uh, near real-time systems, which it could have had. Uh, so it was still having to, you know, land and the photographs and even the imagery, the radar imagery had to be processed instead of it being done while the aeroplane was still airborne in real-time. And they basically wanted to put it against the KH-11. So um, Mac McKendry actually flew this particular sortie, and um, they were um, the, the squadron commander actually made a special trip over in a tanker um, to uh, Milden Hall to explain, look, this is a, a very important mission. This is what's going on. You're going to have your photography compared to that of a KH-11, and it's all going to be part of this evaluation process. Um, For those who don't know, by the way, the KH-11, that's the, was the emerging satellite technology of the day. Yeah, uh, the keyhole. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, uh, and so it was going to be coming up and looking north at the target area around the Barents Sea, and the SR would do you know, pretty much its normal thing, going around the Barents Sea looking south. Um, basically, there were two days that the satellite boys couldn't get the thing in the right position, you know, and by, you can imagine how this was, you know, the U.S. Navy were probably getting more than a little tad tense about this yeah. because, the, you know, um, for reasons nothing to do with them, you know, or even the boys at uh, Milton Hall, they weren't getting the intelligence that they needed. And then word came through, right, okay, what we want you to do now is actually um, um, debt four at Milton Hall. We want you to fly at 15,000 feet around the Barents Sea and, and take the imagery. Well, if anyone knew anything about the SR-71, uh, this just was impossible. That yeah. was not yeah. what it, it was about. Uh, it was ridiculous. So in the end, uh, I think the, the, uh, the amount of pressure that was put on uh, whether it was the debt or probably at the Air Force level, it was like, right, well, we're going to fly this mission anyway. So on the 20th of, uh, of March, uh, it was good old 964, flew mission GR-104G. Um, and as Mike McKendry, who flew the sortie with his backseater, Randy Shellhor, said, you know, to this day, you know, I'm not sure that there was actually any imagery from the satellite to compare ours against because it was just, you know, they couldn't get it in the right place. But even so, you know, yeah, um, we all know what happened, actually. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Uh, I reckon that the aeroplane was probably cancelled five years before uh, it should have been. It stopped. Because right. we had Gulf right. War One uh, come along yep. very shortly after uh, the, the program was chopped. And funnily enough, the same guy, Mac McKendry, um, uh, was given um, F1 EF111s to fly, and he said, uh, "There I was providing EW electronic warfare cover to the RF4C Phantoms that were going in." He said, taking multiple shots, multiple aeroplanes, having to use to get these the targeting information back. And he said, "You know, the SR, we could have done all of it on our yeah. own in one mission, on one flight." Uh, yeah, you yeah, know. yeah. So it, it, it showed that it, it was definitely cancelled prematurely um yeah um it, it really was but hey ho um it's interesting let me kelly johnson said he, the article number if you like um that he called yep. the sr program the first one was 2001 
<laughs> because he believed it wasn't just a number he plucked out of the air. He thought that 2001, the aeroplane would be able to remain, um, it, it, fly with impunity until yeah. then. Had that five-year slot, interestingly enough, continued, and you know, because all aeroplanes have a sell-by date, even the SR. Sure. Saying sure. Yeah, it would have been two thousand and one, and Kelly, yeah. as as with virtually everything he ever said, would have been absolutely bang on the money. Yeah, would have been right. Now, let me come back to the legacy. Then I think I want to just ask you, um, just get some, through some of the questions. Um, from the listeners. Um, so we said we were going to have a chat with you and, uh, and, and true, true, true to the cause. Um, we had some interesting questions. Um, Leonard Vandenbrock, um, Ricardo Vestutu and Dwayne Day all asked similar questions. Um, how much does the, this version of the book compared to the last version of the book how many new photos and what's become available more recently right okay i think we've covered you know certainly the cia program but again there's yeah. a, the thing with the kh4 and mac mckendry and there has been a, there has been a lot more information about both programs especially so if we're looking at numbers and i, I made a Quick note, rough note of this. So, in the last book, 180,000 words of narrative. This one is 252,000. There were 460 images. This one is 520. 16 chapters in the old one, 19 in this. 472 pages versus 528 pages. Uh, and as as you alluded to earlier, Peter, it's a brute. I mean, it, it really does weigh. I think it weighs over three kilos. I yeah, think. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not, it, it is a big, heavy, um, heavy book, yeah. but it's be- it is beautifully produced. I, I think, in terms of the way it's been laid out yes. um, and the way it's been produced physically it's a very very impressive i think um, you know the guys uh, at osprey honestly I, 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 they do a phenomenal job they really do yeah. I, I you know i just put the words and some pictures together and they you know get the, their magic dust and uh, you know and they turn it into the book that it is and i uh, yeah i, I yeah. wholeheartedly agree with you peter i think they have done yeah. an amazing job it's a it's a very special piece of work. So, Ricardo, for you, an extra hundred and twenty photos. Uh, Leonard, Dwayne, um, seventy thousand more words, and God knows how many chapters. And I was writing the notes down, but I, I I ran out. There's a lot more in there. You need to you need to get it. A couple of other questions that came in on our Facebook feed. Um, first one was, what were the main differences between the A12 and the SR71? Uh, in a nutshell. Single man operation A12, two man operation in the SR. Um, because the SR had more sensor systems, you know, you really did need a, another person in the back there to operate them all, you know, with the high resolution yeah. radar and everything else. Yeah, you really did need an extra crew member. That, that right, in okay. is that. Right. Uh, one other question from Facebook. Um, how did the Oxcart development programs overlap with the development of the SR71? Um, yes, they, they were sort of really two separate programs. Um, <clears throat> one, um, a covert, um, CIA, obviously, and the other overt. Um, and the main reason for the SR-71 program, in a nutshell, was part of the PSYOP program, the Single Integrated Operational Plan, which would be used, you know, in a nuclear exchange. So, uh, So that's if you like, was the raison d'etre of, uh, you know, of the SR-71. But, of course, it right. did okay. a gazillion amount of other things after that. There was just one of, but that was, yeah. if you like, the, the, the pretty central driver, whereas, you know, covert operations, as we said, initially it was going to overfly the Soviet Union, uh, you know, and take over from the U-2, as we know, as we yeah. covered, uh, you know, this evening. That that just didn't uh, didn't happen for the reasons. And how did their timetables overlap, Paul? Uh, well, the um, the SR seventy one flew its first operational sortie in uh, March sixty eight, which I think was two weeks after. 
the A-12 flew its last over North Vietnam, its last operational flight right. over. So right. that was the kind of the, the overlap. Uh, and again, that was down to the Bureau of the Budget basically saying, why on earth have you got two programs? You know, you've got the covert yeah. and the overt. You know, what, why are you doing that? And there was a fly-off between the two types and one thing or another. But, yeah, the long and short of it was uh, the Air Force uh, got uh, got the program, and it, uh, both for North Vietnam and PSYOP and the whole strategic, you know, gathering of strategic intelligence worldwide, um, yeah. which it went on to do, well, for over 20 years, incredibly successfully. Yeah. Um, I, I thought that was just um, reminds me of a, a, some really interesting politics, in uh, again, towards the end of the book, about the budgets and where the budgets were allocated. And I, I did laugh out loud when the decision for those who were anti uh, the program or trying to stop the program going were then given the but made to, in effect, pay for the operation ongoing. I did thought that that was quite interesting. (laughs) Um, But Joe over on Twitter, Joe, the American Av Geek, um, Av writer Joe, that is, he said, and I know you've answered this, but to your knowledge, did did the Blackbird ever overfly the Soviet Union? I can say categorically, no. Absolutely one bazillion percent. You know, it was a Eisenhower that said no manned U.S. Air Force or American aircraft will overfly the Soviet Union. And subsequent presidents after that said the same thing. So absolutely no. You know, it would have caused such a furore from the Soviets. We would have heard about it, but it would it did not happen. Right. Okay. Well, def- definitive answer uh, there, Joe. So let me come back to my summary question then, Paul. We often ask about the legacy of a retired aircraft, um, and I, but I think in this case, there's so much the Blackbird has left for us. How can you? How would you wrap up the legacy that um, the A12 and the SR71 have left? That is a very good question, Peter. I think uh, it it validated the concept of triple sonic, extremely high altitude strategic reconnaissance. That's what it did. But over and above that, you know, the technologies um, that were used to produce the aeroplane, the systems that it used, again, they were all, at, you know, the cutting edge of technology. And as you rightly say, uh, you know, even the design was very stealthy. Uh, you know, and as I said earlier, it was until we had these high-speed computers, until we had fly-by-wire, we, we couldn't have produced an F-117 back then because we just didn't have yeah. you know the computer the uh, high speed computers uh, to predict how radar waves would react to the target uh, or you know the the, the, um, the systems on the airplane to make the thing fly um, so you know so again though that was really at the cutting edge the blended body there were so many other concepts you know that that, that airplane embodied and you look at it, you go to Duxford today, you know, which is the only one that we have in this country. And yeah. you get it. And, you know, you do have to, I, I still scratch my head and think, you know, how? How? I, I, I'm lucky enough to have seen one at Mildon Hall. And I, I'm going to say it was 76, maybe 75, 76 at, the, uh, at one of the air days doing, I think, one or two flybys and... Uh, it's just it just stays with you forever yes. it's just such a unique aircraft yeah. those two j58s you know when they put the burner in as they always say you know the sound of freedom they used to say. yeah yeah, 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 it, yeah. It really did you know the ground would shake your teeth would rattle around yeah. your jaw uh, it was it was yeah. awesome yeah, it, it, it certainly was. Well, Paul, it's, it's been fabulous um, talking to you. The, the most important thing is, though, where can we find out more about the book 
online. Okay. Well, um, it is available on, or will be, from the 23rd, that's when the book is officially released, 23rd of November um, on Amazon. But if you go to um, Osprey on their site, ospreypublishing.com, at the moment it's 54 quid instead of 60, and it includes free postage. And given the weight, that's a really, really good deal. I'm not sure that the postman will necessarily see it that way. Uh, And also, we're going to actually be putting, if I may just, uh, um, we're going to be putting some additional um, extra content actually on that webpage. So uh, in this new book, we took the debt one log out of the book because we just needed the extra space for all the extra information and pictures and maps. So we're going to put that on the website. We're also going to put about a 40% complete log of every debt for flight on there. And I've also got the log of every flight that the airplanes at Palmdale were used for evaluation. Um, We're going to put that all on there as well. So hopefully uh, there'll be a couple of people out there that will think, do you know what? I'm going to take over from this old boy by the name of Crickmore and I'm going to start <laughs> writing the next book about the SR-71. So hopefully you know, that might be of use to someone in the future. Anyway. Well, you never know. There might be more secrets they've got to release yet. Indeed. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's it. We'd like to thank White Hearts for our music and Mick Oki at the Aviation Historian for, for all of their support for the programme. We'd also like to give a special thank you to Simon Jakubowski at the Aviation Enthusiasts Book Club. He's a fabulous guy. It's a fabulous group. So please go out there and support Simon on that group um you can find me a nascot hornet on twitter and you can find tim ellie and gareth on the extended twitter facebook threads and instagram feeds that's it with the arrival of the music it's goodbye from paul uh, goodbye enjoy your evening and it's goodbye from me peter johnson remember stay tuned to this frequency that is of course aerospace radio station extended legal policy and use of our material can be found on our website please do ask before using anything you hear the programs produced with a creative commons license please leave us a review wherever you play your podcast it genuinely helps grow our program and broaden its reach you can also review the program and leave us feedback on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to email us, our email address is getinvolved at aviationextended.co.uk. And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you... The Royal Aeronautical Society is the world's only professional body dedicated to the entire aerospace community. Established in 1866 to further the art, science and engineering of aeronautics, the Society has remained at the forefront of developments in aerospace. Visit www.aerosociety.com Extend it! This is XTP Media.